Uh, John chapter 14, we're going to be looking at the last few verses. Tim read them earlier, beginning in verse 25, all the way down to verse 31 of John 14. These are some of our favorite chapters, some of our favorite, perhaps, words of Christ. And so we want to just linger over these last few verses here in John 14, verses 15 through 31, as we anticipate gathering around the Lord's table together. Would you pray with me one more time briefly before we look into God's word here together? Father God, we do affirm again the foundation that we have in Jesus alone. And we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to look to Christ even now, help us to look to Christ when our hearts are troubled. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you about whitewater rafting, Florida inlets, and your heart. Whitewater rafting. I'll tie these together around a word in just a moment. Uh, Some of you have been whitewater rafting. Who has been whitewater rafting? There's a fair number. Uh, If you've been whitewater rafting, you know that they, they rate it by class. So class one rapids would be the kind of thing that are fun to go down in a canoe, right? You've been on a river and there's a little bit of excitement and it moves you a little faster. Class two just turns it up just a little bit. Uh, This was the description I found online. Involves wide, clear channels that are easy to maneuver. Class two, ah. Right? Class three is when it starts to get just a little bit more exciting. The water is a little more unpredictable, might be harder to go around the rapids, you're kind of committed, the the river's gonna drive you towards them. The one time that I've gone whitewater rafting, uh, it was down in North Carolina, and uh, it was class two and three. So no big shakes, it goes up to class six. No big shakes. So they give a safety talk. It was a bunch of of teens. Uh, Some of my friends were in my raft. We had a guide in the back who was kind of steering. They give the safety talk. Okay, if it flips over, you want to point your legs down the river. You have a life jacket on. Keep your feet together. Ride the rapids. We'll pick you up. It'll be fine. So lo and behold, uh, we begin towards these class three rapids, which feel really legitimate, but in the big scope are not that impressive, right? So we're heading towards them, and sure enough, our raft is the one that gets turned sideways, flips over, and not 30 minutes after the safety talk, I'm thinking, okay, I'm glad I heard that. All right, I'm going to point my legs. I got to ride the rapids in a little different style uh, in the life jacket. It was, it was really, it was really actually quite memorable. And, and then we spent the rest of the time uh, wet, which was great too. The class three did not disappoint, right? Florida Inlet. Some of you have seen these videos. I've seen them online. Maybe you've seen them on the news or elsewhere. But there's these inlets down in Florida where a river or some sort of a harbor meets the ocean and the water is just choppy. And you have people with, with more money than, than skill, right? And they have these big boats and they're going to navigate the inlet. And you got little boats, you got big boats, you got some that are going fast, some that are going slow, and they start rocking. And then people literally set up cameras and film these inlets because they know on a, on a beautiful summer day, you're going to get a lot of dumb people. 
And, and you can just watch. It's free entertainment online. It's amazing. Water's coming in. Life jackets are floating out of the boats. Uh, occasionally, you'll see someone go in and they usually get rescued. There's people there because it's such a common occurrence. Seen a couple boats get driven against the rocks and, uh, and some sink, which is also exciting. There's an, there's an old word uh, in English that parallels a word actually in Greek. And the Greek word uh, can be used to describe water that's, that's like the rapids, water that's like an inlet where currents are meeting and it's just, it's just irregular. And, and there's also an English parallel. And English, interesting, the English word can also be used to describe water and can also be used to describe our hearts. And the English word is troubled. That's troubled water. That's how they used to describe it. And, and it can be used, what can be used of water that's been kind of stirred up and agitated. There's a Greek word, and it's translated with our English word, troubled. We've seen it in our passage. Jesus is talking about our hearts. The water can be rough and choppy and unpredictable. It's moving. It's up and down, right? There's different currents meeting. It's churning. In our hearts, Jesus says, they're like, they're like water like that. Our hearts can be troubled. We experience some inner turmoil. Things are stirred up in us. We're unsettled on the inside. We're disturbed, another word that can be used of water and of us. Maybe we're frightened. Maybe we're afraid. Flip side, our hearts are not calm, right? They're not calm in the least. Things are, are rough. We've seen this word once before in our passage. If you go back to John 14, verse 1, or listen, let me read it again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's in our passage as well. Look down at verse 27 at the end, second half. Let not your hearts be, there it is again, troubled. Neither let them be afraid. We aren't experiencing the same pressures that Jesus' first disciples were experiencing on the eve of his crucifixion. But we face challenges every day, right? We often find our hearts troubled, like rapids, like an inlet where different currents meet. Maybe your heart is troubled this morning. Maybe you are mourning a loss still. Maybe you're discouraged with where your life is or where it seems to be going. Maybe your heart is troubled because you're anxious. You're lonely. Maybe you just feel unsettled. You feel irritable. You're impatient. Maybe you find yourself kind of playing out the worst scenario just again and again and again. There's no calm in your heart, in your mind. Maybe you're afraid of, of failure. Of, of disappointing, of maybe you're afraid of, of going too far or of your body slowly failing or of that relationship not improving or of your kids just continuing to, to struggle. Maybe it's something that's happened recently and it wasn't so much an event, but someone said something. It was a, a word of criticism or critique and, and, and you're in turmoil on the inside. Maybe it's their silence. 
Maybe you are walking in a prolonged season of disappointment. Things looked really promising, right? The opportunity was finally coming. And then the, fin- the opportunity came and then and it left without you, right? You have good days and you have less good days. And, and you're not sure how tomorrow will go. Your heart is troubled. You are perhaps afraid. So what does Jesus say to his disciples to comfort them? What, what words of comfort can we derive here from Jesus's words when our hearts are troubled. So we want to take our hearts, take our situation, take our attention now to Jesus's words. Friends, if Jesus can say, peace, be still and stop a storm and calm a sea, he can calm your troubled heart. He speaks to us now. When your heart is troubled, remember these three things. First, Jesus can still be known. I'll explain what I mean here in a minute. Jesus can still be known. This is verses 25 and 26, especially verse 26. Jesus can still be known. Follow with me, and I think you'll see how this is crucial when our hearts are troubled. Jesus can still be known. We remember the context, hopefully, from the last few weeks, but Jesus reminds us and his disciples of it with his words there in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Saying, all right, I'm about to leave and I'm setting expectations for after my departure. We talked about this last week. So the context is he's sharing with his disciples on Thursday night. Just before Jesus' trial, just before Jesus' crucifixion, just before Jesus' burial, just just before Jesus' resurrection. It's Thursday. He's rising on Sunday. Just before, soon after, he ascends to the Father. They are distraught. And this is Jesus' final talk, final words for and with his disciples. Judas Iscariot has gone out. It's the 11 that remain here. Jesus can still be known. What do I mean by that? Look again at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus here isn't speaking specifically or directly about the Holy Spirit's teaching us today remember the context right jesus is explaining to his disciples who have been with jesus these last three years who have repeatedly failed to grasp what jesus was teaching he's telling them okay this is how you will come to more accurately more fully embrace what i've been saying this is how you will you will be led to record in the Gospels and the rest of Scripture the accounting of me. So the Spirit is going to interpret for them. The Spirit is going to remind them. He's going to guide them as they, the apostles, will record Scripture here, especially the Gospels. Jesus is telling his disciples about their future role in recording Scripture. So Jesus can still be known because this came true. 
Because we have scripture today. Because he revealed himself through the apostolic witness to us. We could put it this way. One of the ways the second helper, remember another helper, we saw this previous week, that is the Holy Spirit. One of the ways the Spirit helps us today is by guiding the disciples then to record the testimony regarding the first helper, Jesus, in Scripture. So how does the Holy Spirit guide and teach us today? Well, it's through His Word. He does have a role to do this. We could look at other passages that keep that, teach that clearly. It's never out of line with Scripture. But here, I think the application for us is this. When, when your heart is troubled, know you can still know Jesus. Because this, verse 26, is, is happened, right? We have God's word. We have the recorded testimony. The Spirit did do the work in the apostles. So that they might, we might have in, uh, inspired scripture. That we might have the record of what Jesus taught and did and its significance. The apostles spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1. The Spirit who taught them all things and brought all that Jesus said into their remembrance. John 14, 26. So how can Jesus still be known today? Friends, it's in God's word. It's in the Bible. Do you see? When your heart is in turmoil, run to Jesus by running to his word. Go to the Old Testament that anticipates and and teaches of Christ. Go to the Psalms, Jesus' prayer book. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, full of what Jesus said and did and what it accomplished. Go to the continued record of the work of the risen and ascended Christ in the book of Acts. Go to the epistles and his work in and through the church. Go to John's revelation and the culmination of all things. When our heart is troubled... We run from Jesus if we don't run to his word. The power of God's word to save and to sanctify is the power we need to calm the tumult in our hearts. His promises are our peace. So we need the reorienting work of the word in our hearts. Maybe two sets of questions here, just by way of application at the end of our first point. First, do you have a plan? What, what is your plan to get to know Jesus better? Do you have a plan to get to know Jesus better? How can you cultivate what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, a vital two-way relationship with, with Jesus? Along those lines, a second maybe set of questions. What reminders can you put into place... So that when your heart is troubled, you can encounter Jesus and his words. Strategize and prepare now before the inner turmoil throws you off. So this is, this is truth learned. Verses memorized. Sticky notes placed. Right? I have a, a note on my phone so I'm an Android guy. We were talking about this in Sunday school. I have an Android smartphone. And it has the Google Notes app. And I have a, a, a note in there that I have pinned so it stays at the top. And it's just truths that I, that I need to rehearse a lot because of my own weakness. 
my own temptation to doubt and fear. How are you going to prepare for when turmoil and trouble comes to your heart? Hide supplies now where you can reach them then when you're in the thick of it. Second point. Second point. Jesus gives his peace. Jesus gives his peace. Oh, what a sweet verse we have in verse 27. We're going to linger here together. Jesus gives his peace. The reality is that the biblical theme of peace is a lot deeper and richer than our English word peace. What we think of when we think of peace. When we hear the word, we maybe think, okay, no war, right? So the absence of some sort of turmoil or uh, a conflict, that's peace. No conflict, peace. Okay, but peace in the Bible. So if you remember the Old Testament word shalom, right? Peace in scripture is is a richer theme. It also includes the idea of a positive blessing. That is peace, to receive blessing, especially through a right relationship with God. So, so peace then is knowing God, knowing his smile, even when his providence is frowning. It's clinging to his promises, even when we don't feel his goodness. So when Jesus gives his peace, he doesn't give a promise of a calm life. No, he gives the promise of his presence leading to a calm heart. Do you see the difference? Look down at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. He doesn't give the promise of a calm life. He gives the promise of his presence that leads to a calm heart. So it isn't the trouble you're in. It's the trouble in you that his peace addresses and affects. His peace is actually most clearly seen while we're going through turmoil and persecution and conflict. But get this, when, when Jesus gives his peace, it's in the context of him giving his spirit. That's the previous verse, verse 26. So God's abiding presence by the Spirit is the root of the peace. It's the blessing we need. It's the blessing He gives. It's where peace can be found. One author, Robert Jones, summarizes it this way. This peace summarizes all the gracious provisions wrapped up in our Lord's promises. This is how D.A. Carson talks about it. The peace which garrisons our hearts and minds against the invasion of anxiety, Philippians 4, 7. The peace which rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony amongst them, Colossians 3, 15. So peace protects our hearts from troubles out there leading to trouble in here. His peace guards us from from fear, from anxiety, from worry. Not from all that may tempt us to those things. The world may give us the absence of turmoil for a time. We often chase peace by pursuing a different setting. But only the peace of Christ can secure inward peace. That's not threatened by a change in circumstance tomorrow. Only his peace is evergreen 
Only his peace can calm a troubled heart. This is how the Apostle Paul reflects on this theme. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and then note here, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how does this work? How is his peace our peace? Well, he said, right, it's through prayer. It's through going to God. But then he gives a second way in the next verse. It's through going to his word. Listen to what he says next. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Jesus gives his peace. Robert Jones calls this summarizes all the gracious provisions wrapped up in his promises. Provisions like going to God in prayer and hearing from him through his word. So when you are anxious, when you are distraught, when you find a turmoil in your heart, it isn't simplistic to begin with questions like, have I talked to God about this? Questions like, am I hearing and believing his promises through his word? When our heart is in turmoil, we need to, as the old authors would say, get in the way of grace. Get position ourselves in the way of grace. And grace comes through prayer and the word. So when a brother or sister is struggling and you, and you notice it, it's not, unlo- it's not unloving at all to gently ask, have you been able to talk to God about this? Are you able to pray? What are you reading? And if they confess, oh, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, come alongside them and say, can I pray with you? Could I pray for you right now? Could we meet up and read God's word together? Let me, let me help you in your weakness, in the turmoil, to get in the way of grace. So that you might receive his peace. Third and finally, Satan has no claim on Jesus. Third Truth for a troubled heart. Satan has no claim on Jesus. This third point uh, really is attached to a core truth. So the last four verses, verses 28 through 31, I think the main truth is that Jesus is perfectly obedient. That's the truth. And then attached directly to that truth is this takeaway. Satan has no claim on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is perfectly obedient. So I want you to see the, the core truth, and then we're going to focus on this attachment, if you will. Look down at verse 31. Verse 31. I do as the Father has commanded me. So Jesus is obedient to the Father. We see this throughout the passage. Jesus never sinned, always obeyed, sinless perfection. Go up to verse 28, the end of the verse. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. We need to linger here, lest we misunderstand or lest we miss the preciousness of this. The Father is greater than Jesus. Jesus. 
It can't mean that Jesus is not God. It's been very clear from the context that Jesus is indeed the eternal son of God. It can't mean that Jesus is a lesser God, right? The context of all of scripture is one of monotheism. There is but one true God. An analogy may help. It's an imperfect analogy. Tom Brady is greater than I. He is. In what ways, you say? Is he more human than me? No, 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 not in those ways. How is he greater than I? Well, I I listed just a few that came to mind. Wealth. It's close, but, you know. (laughs) Accomplishments. Also close. No, just kidding. Uh, Influence. Popularity. You just keep going, right? Tom Brady is greater than I. But no one thinks he's more human than I am. What kind of greatness then does Jesus have in view here when he says the father is greater than, than I? Look again at verse, verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father for the father is greater than I. Notice the line there towards the end, because I am going to the father, because I'm returning to the sphere where I belong to the glory of the father that existed before the world began. I'm going to the place, as one author put it, where the father is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the son in his incarnate state. So the father is greater is tied to Jesus returning to him. So this is what Jesus will pray over in chapter 17, verse five. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus's departure is Jesus's gain. And if they weren't so caught up with themselves, they would have rejoiced that Jesus was going to the greater glory. That he was returning to the Father, the one who is greater. One commentator noted, the disciples' grief is an index of their self-centeredness. They're more concerned about their sorrow than their master's joy. This is us all too often, isn't it? We don't seek his glory But we just see our pain and Jesus rebukes us here. So we see this core truth that Jesus is obedient, rightly submitted to the father, perfectly obedient. He does all that the father commands him to do. So now we arrive at what we see attached to that. Our third point, Satan has no claim on Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you. Again, he's going to depart. We know this from the context. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That is, the ruler of the world has no claim on me, Jesus says. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus uses legal language. He has no claim on me. How could Satan have a claim on Jesus? Jesus had never sinned. He was perfectly obedient. If, Jesus, if Satan could bring a true, a justifiable, a, a supported claim, a charge against Jesus, Jesus' death would have just been his wages, right? The wages of sin is death. Jesus' death would have been Satan's triumph. 
But Satan didn't have the upper hand on the cross. The disciples needed to hear this, needed to remember this. They needed to be comforted by this. Jesus' death wasn't his defeat, but Satan's. Jesus' death wasn't Satan's triumph, but Jesus's. Through dying and rising, Jesus conquered sin and death and Satan. Such that the ruler of this world is Christ's lackey. He lashes out, but he is leashed. What a comfort to these disciples. What a comfort to us. Right? Imagine, imagine meeting with these disciples. Just 36, 48 hours later. It's Thursday night. Imagine you come from 2,000 years in the future and you show up and you meet with them on Saturday. And you say, I'm a Christian from 2,000 years in the future. And they would say, what? You'd say, a Christian. I'm a disciple of Christ. And then imagine that you're explaining to them that yesterday is called Good Friday. And you celebrate it every year. Good What's good about that? They would say our master is dead and with him died our hope. We're likely going to be implicated in his so-called crimes. Jesus here is preparing them for Saturday. For his seeming defeat, for Satan's seeming triumph. And he declares, despite how it's going to seem, despite how it's going to look, despite how you're going to feel, know this. Satan has no claim on me. The war is over. The allied powers have won. You, You may be fighting a battle still on a distant field. And the enemy might still be advancing. And imagine in that context, the word comes. But the enemy's advancing. Your life seems all but lost. You're losing ground, still resisting, but losing ground. And word comes of victory. You you don't despair. But you don't stop fighting, right? Suddenly you struggle differently. You fight differently. You you fight to believe the news. And you fight knowing that there's going to be an end to your struggle. What a glorious promise we have here. In Jesus' words of comfort and confidence. Friends, we know where we are in the story of redemption. We know how it's really going. Satan has no claim on our Savior. And we know how it's going to end. Troubled hearts we have? Yeah, often. Turmoil within? Yes. But victory is sure even when the battle continues for a time. Jesus calms our hearts by pointing to Satan's sure defeat. And he puts all our struggles, every frowning providence, every bewilderment, every every seeming defeat in the context of his smiling face. He has declared his love for them time and time again. And as chapter 14 ends now, He calls to his disciples to start walking with him to Gethsemane. I'll have the men head to the back as we prepare to observe the Lord's table. I want you to look at the last sentence there in chapter 14. Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. He has spoken of his love. And as he's talking with them, this final conversation, his farewell discourse, he begins to walk with them to Gethsemane. He's going to show his love now. 
So his final words won't come in the upper room, but on the road. The time of his departure has come. How does Jesus calm troubled hearts? He makes promises to his disciples, and then he makes his way to the cross. Do you see? There he secures the peace that your troubled heart, that my troubled heart needs. He makes promises, and then he makes his way to the cross. As the men come forward, let me close us in prayer. Father God, we are so grateful that you spoke a word to your troubled disciples that we still need to hear today. Help us to see how you provide comfort through your word, by your spirit, through your promises, and ultimately through the cross. Thank you that you don't just talk a big game, but that you stepped forward into the battle. That you won our victory, that you secured our redemption. That in you we might have life and have it more abundantly. We confess that oftentimes, many of us, even this morning, have troubled hearts. They're up, they're down, they're all over the place. They're all stirred up. So we need these words. We need your word to calm our troubled hearts. Forgive us for the times we've sought peace the way the world seeks peace seeking the peace that the world offers. Largely external, temporary. Help us to pursue the peace that comes only from you. Help us to see again how you calm our hearts by making promises and then making your way to the cross. As we gather now around this table, may we make our way to the cross. May we gather around to examine, to recall, to rejoice, to remember. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us for the journey. That you would sustain us now. Strengthen our faith. Through your word and through this meal, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.